Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. What they did to my clients was they stuffed them into a closed room that was like 125 degrees for 14 hours, and they had no food, no water. Many of them uh, had heart problems afterwards. They literally thought they were going to die of uh, dehydration, and ultimately the SEALs were able to release them. But 14 hours in a 10 by 10 room that's 120 degrees with no food and water. White captain's out there and they're doing God knows what to them. And these are tough guys too, by the way. People that work on these ships are not wimps. You know, it takes quite a bit for them to even talk about PTSD. Please rise, court is now in session. Welcome to uh, the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Steve. I'm broadcasting from basically the center of the sun. I have these I know, <laughs> giant I was gonna, windows I was, behind I was, me. I was going to describe to our listeners what we're seeing <laughs> on Zoom, which is like we like just this, you know, uh, hallelujah, glory light that's behind <laughs> Yvonne, you know, and, and she just looks like the uh, the bright angel you've ever seen she, look, uh, she looks like an angel she looks like an angel <laughs> exactly it, it, it looks very upscale i'm actually sitting on the floor in a bedroom in my parents house um because i'm recording from over here so it's not very glamorous but uh, very, uh it looks glamorous <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm ex- um, but I'm excited to be here. We've got some fun stuff to talk, really interesting stuff to talk about today. It, I mean, today's show is is fascinating. And I was thinking about trying to do something, you know, like uh, um, witty about like the Pirates of the Caribbean or something. But, you know, this is not really the Pirates of the Caribbean. It's not really fun at all. And uh, and what uh, what our guest has come here to talk about is something that was uh, was tragic. And, and it's a it's a it's sort of a well-known story because. Everybody is familiar with the movie that came out of it, but as we're going to hear from uh, from Brian, uh, the movie wasn't exactly accurate. But uh, but why don't we go ahead and, and introduce our guest, Brian Beckham? Uh, Brian, uh, I want to say hello to you, and then I'll, I'll let everybody know exactly who you are. How are you, Brian? I'm doing great, Yvonne and Steve. I'm really looking forward to this. Y'all have a great podcast. We've been trying to connect for quite some time now, and I'm I'm really excited that we've finally been able to do it. Yeah, no, I and and, and I'm really looking forward to this uh, to this episode because there's just some fascinating stuff to talk about. But uh, but let me tell everybody about you, Brian. Uh, so Brian Beckham is a is a partner in VB Attorneys based out of Houston, Texas. Uh, and Brian uh, has been practicing law for about 25 years. Has had just some tremendous. Uh, uh, verdicts and and uh, done great work. He is a graduate and an undergrad graduate from Texas A&M University, where he played basketball, uh, and then went to the University of Texas Law School. Uh, he is a board certified expert in personal injury trial law, and um, has been uh, on multiple uh, national TV shows, including Nightline and Good Morning America. Um, and uh, has I, I want to make sure that we uh, let everybody know that Brian has his his own podcast as well, and so everybody should go check out Lessons from Leaders with Brian Beckham. Uh, and I should have said at the beginning that if you want to look up Brian, you can go to vbattorneys.com. That's vbattorneys.com. And um, and in addition to um, in addition to being a great lawyer. Uh, Brian is a, an avid fly fisherman, a single digit golfer, has a, an author of six books uh, and uh, and an expert, as we saw when he first came on to uh, to Zoom, uh, an, an expert in jujitsu. And um, and Brian, it's just great to have you. 
I'm I'm super super duper excited. That was a that was a great introduction. You forgot one thing though. You said <laughs> you, know, you said I'd been on Nightline and Dateline. <laughs> yeah. You for you forgot the Great Trials podcast. That's right. That's right. <laughs> exactly. That's right. <laughs> the uh, the I biggest mean, I, feather I, in your cap. I'm I'm sure yeah. that'll go right to the top of your of your resume. <laughs> you know, like, for sure. For the, sure. Right, that that will be the next time a client looks you up. That'll be the closer. It's like, wait a minute, he's been on the Great Trials podcast. Well, well, have you ever seen like in the movies where, you know, somebody will be a struggling actor? Like I used to watch this show with my wife called Friends. And oh, yeah. <laughs> Joey's a struggling actor. And so Joey, if Joey got two seconds on some show, everybody, it was like the biggest thing in his career. So my Nightline appearance was about 10 seconds long. So this is actually going to be way more. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. You're, the, my, you're my, the star of this one. Exactly. My nightline experience was basically Marisk is negligent and they need to pay my clients. And right. That was, that was yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, very good. Well, let's talk about the case that we're here to talk about. So we are here to talk about the, the, the true life story that is behind uh, the movie uh, Captain Phillips. <laughs> Uh, but it involved a case that was, I, I think if, if I read right, Brian, it was it was filed in, in Texas and then filed in Alabama. It was scheduled to be tried in Mobile, Alabama, uh, and got settled in 2013, shortly before trial. But this stems out of the uh, attack on the uh, Marisk, Alabama, uh, as it was um, going from, I think, Djibouti. Uh, down to um, Mombasa, Kenya, and uh, went through um, waters that were off the coast of Somalia. And uh, there was a, the UN and, and others had essentially uh, told uh, ships that, that were going through this area that if they wanted to be safe, that if they wanted to be away from pirates, uh, to stay about 600 miles off the coast, this uh, this ship uh, uh, that was uh, captained by Captain Richard Phillips uh, went about 250 miles off the coast, uh, so much closer within this this area that was known to be dangerous, known to be pirate infested. Uh, and then the the day before the attack, so the attack was on April 9, 2009. The day before the attack, they spotted a small uh, boat off of the stern. And for those of you who don't know, Yvonne, that's the back of the boat. Um, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. I didn't know that. <laughs> they, they they spotted a small boat off this off the stern, and uh, and it was reported they they sounded the emergency. The crew gathered in the uh, I think in the uh, engine room, and uh, and that boat eventually went away. Uh, but then the next morning, uh, there was a much bigger boat uh, that uh, ATM Reza, who's one of the crew members, had spotted uh, that was that was coming towards them. He told Captain Phillips. <laughs> And the the captain uh, essentially laughed at him and walked away and um, and said it was probably a shipping uh, a boat. And then within a few hours of that, uh, Somali pirates uh, were boarding the ship, uh, taking the crew hostage. So it's and essentially what happened from what I understand. And, and Brian, please correct me if I'm wrong. But um, I think ATM Reza and, and Captain Phillips were on the bridge. The rest of the crew went to the uh, engine room at the steering room and, and locked themselves or barricaded themselves in there. Um, and then uh, during the time that, that, uh, that the captain and ATM Reza were being uh, held, um, the leader of the pirates, uh, a man named Abduwali uh, Muse or Musa, um, 
took them down into the boat to try and find the rest of the crew. And as he was doing that, um, uh, uh, ATM Reza was able to um, try to make an escape. He actually stabbed him in the hand, stabbed um, uh, the leader in the hand, and then they took him captive. So it became this standoff where some of the pirates had Captain Phillips captive, and then some of the uh, and then the crew had um, had um, the the pirates' leader Muse uh, held held as a uh, as a prisoner, and they tried to make an exchange. Uh, so they they uh, tried to exchange Muse for Captain Phillips. Uh, the the pirates uh, basically uh, Muse was able to get away, and they took Captain Phillips, got onto a, a lifeboat, and um, and got off the boat, taking Captain Phillips uh, with them. Um, and then about a day later, I believe uh, the Navy uh, came and was able to uh, execute the rescue um, and and help. And that that is shown in the movie, uh, where essentially they um, um, through uh, well coordinated sniper work took out three of the pirates, captured uh, the leader Muse, and were able to rescue Captain Phillips. Um, in in addition to this issue of um, th- this issue of fly- of going too close to the um, the coastline of Somalia, was that uh, it, there, this at this time? This is April nine of two thousand nine. At this time, it was well known that pirate attacks, especially in this uh, area, happened often. And the and Maersk uh, Maersk Lim- Lines Limited uh, basically didn't outfit the boat. Uh, or the ship with any uh, type of protection from uh, pirates didn't uh, have a safe room and, and didn't have any of the materials in order to like like firearms or uh, guards or anything like that to fight off an attack if the, if it came uh, it basically because uh, it would cost too much money um, and so so because of what happened uh, and there was there had been a number of uh, injuries that happened in some of the scuffles. And then, uh, obviously, a lot of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder based on, um, you know, being held hostage. Um, there was a, a lawsuit brought, and Brian and his firm uh, represented nine of the crew uh, against uh, Waterman Steamship Corporation and Mar- Maersk Lines Limited for what happened on uh, Maersk, Alabama. And as I said, uh, we're scheduled to go to trial in 2013, and the case settled for a confidential amount shortly uh, before that. So, um, so th- that's the overall um, uh, view of the case. Brian, did I miss anything on the on what we? No, no, no. You, that was a great job. I'm not really sure what else there is to talk about. <laughs> okay, and that, that's our show. <laughs> great show. Yeah, yeah loved, it. loved it. I, I well, hope everybody. I hope everybody listening to the show is ready to pay my clients a bunch of money based that's on that right. description. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, so I, I guess the, you know the first place I wanted to start, Brian, is is how does because I noticed you know, and I, I should have said this when I was introducing you. you, you this isn't the only see um, uh, you know. Uh, um, um, you know, case on the open seas that you've handled. This isn't the only pirate attack uh, um, case that you've handled. Um, this was brought under the Jones Act, I believe. And um, how how does one go about becoming uh, the lawyer to represent uh, crews that have been attacked by pirates? Uh, you know, out on the out on the seas. Yeah. So I'm, let me be clear before I get started. I am not a quote pirate 
lawyer. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, like when I handled this case, people, I mean, I was having people call me from literally all over the world oh, yeah. about yeah. pirate issues because, you know, this case uh, was all over the news and Tom Hanks played Captain Phillips, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, but the short answer to the question is I practice maritime law as part of my personal injury practice for the entire time I've been doing it, which is 22 years now. So uh, <clears throat> I do a lot of Jones Act cases and these cases happen literally all over the world. And I love I love the practice. It's, it's very complicated in, in many respects, but I really, really enjoy it. And what happened was I got a call. I, the, the bar that does these kind of cases, the maritime bar is really small. There's not many lawyers on my side of the docket that do this on a consistent basis. I'll bet I do more cases in more maritime cases in one year than 99.9% of lawyers will ever do for as long as they live. So right. it's a small, it's a small bar and the, the galley hand for the Marist Alabama called me up and the galley hand is basically one of the, one of the cooks. And he said, essentially, will you represent me? This is before there was anything about a movie, anything about Tom Hanks. Now, of course, it was in the news because the Navy SEALs, and, and that was super cool, although there's some interesting details about that that I think your listeners might be interested in uh, that you didn't mention. But but in any event, this was before any of the publicity in terms of like the Tom Hanks movie or the Hollywood stuff. And And what happened was... Uh, essentially, the crew comes back and they get together with Captain Phillips and they say, let's do a book about this. This is going to be a big deal. And Captain Phillips tells him to screw off. Essentially, I'm going to do this by myself. I, I don't want to have anything to do with you guys. I'm going to write my own book and I'm going to make money on my own. And so the crew was like, wait a second. You were the one that got us into this thing to begin with. It's your screw ups. It's your completely ignoring all of these warnings you got that led to this in the in the first place so uh the crew basically got together and Nidham said we, we got to make sure the truth comes out and what i think i'm sure a lot of your listeners are lawyers but i and i think a lot of people that are lawyers are going to know exactly what i'm talking about if there are some listeners that aren't lawyers you, you might not know but a lot of times when people bring lawsuits it truly is about something in addition to the money it's about closure mm -hmm. Or it's about, I, I want to make sure this doesn't happen to somebody again, or I want the truth to come out. I don't want it to get buried. And what, what was happening is the crew truly wanted uh, people to know the truth. And the truth, I, I tell people, people ask me, I went to the, well, literally was at the premiere of Captain Phillips that night. I was at the movie <laughs> with my wife and people were like, so what was it like? And I said, well, let me put it this way. I loved Forrest Gump, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that's all made up too, right? So. Right. The movie takes great liberties <clears throat> with the truth. Now, what do you expect? It's Hollywood. They do that all the time. So I'm not I'm not complaining about that or anything. But the the only thing the movie really got right ultimately was there was an American ship that was attacked by Somali pirates. Everything else, all the details are essentially made up. And but in any event, uh, so so the galley hand calls me and I say, okay, I'll take it. Not thinking it would be a big deal, you know, kind of normal Jones Act case. And then all of a sudden I got half the crew and I'm driving home. I filed a lawsuit. Okay. And I'm driving home on I-10 and uh, I get a call on my cell phone from Nightline. Hey, this is 
such and such from Nightline. We wanted, we just saw you filed this case. We want to do a story on it. Okay. When do you want to do it? How about 10 minutes? Okay. Where? <laughs> right. How about your house? Yeah. <laughs> you have my address? Blah, 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 blah. They gave the address. I'm like, wow, you got a good research department. So I, I see you there in 10 minutes. I call my wife. Hey, honey, uh, Nightline's going to be at the house in 10 minutes <laughs> yeah. and doing an interview. <laughs> so she goes crazy as, 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 uh, Many uh, homemakers that like their house to look good. She's in there cleaning the house up and making it look as good as they can. Nightline shows up. I do this interview and the, the whole thing explodes. Uh, the, the the one interesting part of this is everybody loves Tom Hanks. I mean, Tom Hanks is probably the most popular actor right now. Has been for quite yeah. some time, or or at least one of them. And so I was begging the judge. And by the way, there was this case was actually in three different places at one time. It was in Houston. Alabama and Norfolk, Virginia. At one time, it was also on appeal twice, and I won both those appeals. That's one of the reasons it took so long. It was a jurisdictional right night nightmare, right? So, so, and I'm going to ask you guys to think about this while I'm talking. Where do you file a case that happened in off the coast of East Africa, where every single person on the vessel is from a different place, and the putative defendants are Somalis? Where do you file that case? Think about that for a second. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway, I'm, gonna go, so, I'm gonna go with Houston, yeah. Texas. Yeah, well, that's one place. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but how do you keep it there? So, right, right. So, yeah, but 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 in any event, so uh, I get the case. The movie comes out. The publicity starts happening, and I, it ultimately ended up in Mobile, Alabama, uh, against Maersk, not Waterman, against okay. Maersk. Waterman was still in Houston, and that's a whole legal, you know. Mumbo yeah. jumbo. I could talk about it if you and want to. I, I guess I should have explained. So Waterman was the, was the company that supplied the crew, right? That's the, right. Yeah, they're okay. a crewing company. Maersk is is the operator essentially, yeah. and that's a fairly standard way to set things up uh, in in this kind of deal. But in any event, I go to the judge and I say, Your Honor, Tom Hanks is playing Captain Phillips. I mean, can we please go to trial before the movie comes out? Otherwise, <laughs> right. I'm going to be completely and totally prejudiced and. Because, you know, every trial has to have a bad guy. And Captain That's Phillips right. was kind of my bad guy. And, right. But Tom, how do you make Tom Hanks your bad guy? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the few movies he's been in where he's a bad guy is like his worst acting job. So Right, right, yeah. I don't even believe it. Yeah. Uh, but the judge, and the, 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 of course, all the defense lawyers, and there was tons of them there. Oh, no, we'll ask them all. We'll bore die the heck out of them and blah, 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 blah. We don't, we don't need to rush. We don't need to rush. So the judge denies my request to move the trial date up. And as a result, I the movie comes out and I get millions and millions of dollars of free publicity. It was like, I look back on that. I'm like, man, I am so glad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that I was still working on this case when the movie actually premiered because uh, I mean, the, the, the level of interest was, was unbelievable. And believe it or not, 12, I, you know, I know exactly what, uh, website pages on my website are the most popular. This is these pages where we write about the story and all that stuff are 10 times as more popular than any other page on my website still today. It's, it's really amazing how interesting people find this story. So that's how that's kind of how I, I ended up with the with the case. I mean, again, it's a small there's only a limited number of people that would be qualified to do this case. Right. Uh, yeah. And I happen to be one of them. And I happen to get the first call is kind of what what it amounted to.
All right, so Yvonne, it's always good to be prepared at trial, right? Right. And who can always help you be prepared and your best at trial? Without a doubt, Legal Technology Services. That's right. And you can look them up at LegalTechService.com. That's LegalTechTechService.com. And, uh, and they are just fantastic at trial. Our firm has used them for every trial that we've been to. Uh, they're fantastic, always prepared, always helpful. Uh, and uh, you can say hello to Bob, Melanie, uh, Liz, or Patrick, or any of the other people in their team. But uh, LegalTechnologyServices.com, they can help you not only with your technology at trial, uh, they can help you with day in the life videos. They can help you with mediation uh, settlement videos. They can help you with demonstratives, even including, I one time had them build me a model of a panel that was, I think, 12 feet long by 10 feet tall that had fallen on our client and shattered his leg. And they built one for me that I could use in the courtroom. So they're fantastic. Please go to Legal Technology Services and that's LegalTechService.com. When the, when the Gallihan called you, and obviously it's before there's this Hollywood spin because it's before the, the movie's really in the works. But, at you know, at that point, I guess either based on your your experience or your expertise, did you already know like, OK, yeah, this is definitely a case or was it something you really had to kind of dig into more more into what you were being told? And, you know, like how, what kind of you know, how does the sort of like fact finding that you're able to do work in that kind of situation early on? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Actually, uh, I didn't know. I had done another kidnapping case off the coast of West Africa before this case, where three Ukrainian uh, sailors that were working for a Louisiana-based company got kidnapped. There's, they're basically it's a at least it used to be a business off the coast of West and East Africa, kidnapping people and getting paid for it. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so. But but when I got this case, I'll tell you, the, th the thing I did know, and because everybody knew this at the time, or most people that were geopolitically uh, relatively informed, <clears throat> that East Africa was having tons of problems with piracy. And so I did know that was going on. And I did know that there had been plenty of ships and plenty of people attacked and kidnapped. Uh, what I What I didn't know was what kind of legal theories I would bring, whether those legal theories would be uh, something that the court would entertain or not. So I'll give you one example. One of the legal theories is very simple. If you're going into a, uh, and, and it's this is one of the things as lawyers we love. So when I filed the petition, I described the area as pirate infested waters, okay? Every single news story that ever wrote about this called it pirate infested rather yeah. they adopted that <laughs> yeah. exact Yeah. So, <laughs> so the point is, if you're going in uh, my what my first claim was I had two claims. <clears throat> if you're going into pirate infested waters and you know it, the, the crew has to have some way to defend themselves. Okay. The second claim was what you described earlier. Uh, because and I found that this out a little bit later, by the way. They were specifically told there's a range that if you're outside this range, these, quote, pirate boats. And by the way, they're not pirates. They're fishermen. And most of them are right. teenagers. They're poor Somali teenagers in little crappy boats that can only go out so far. And so if you stay outside that perimeter, you're completely safe. Well, he, he went, 
twice as close as as was recommended in order to save fuel costs, which saves money. So, but you would have thought, Yvonne, to answer your question, when I said you should arm them or something, that, I mean, the entire, most of maritime uh, ships are insured by London syndicates, Lloyd's of London and other Mm -hmm. people, what are called P&I clubs. And you would have thought, I said, uh, you know, the, the Lord Jesus Christ was actually the devil, the way they reacted to this, because I mean, they were like arming the crew. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and I, and I found out by the way, later on that the underwriters, uh, historically had refused to allow the crew to carry weapons because they were afraid they were going to kill each other or they were going to blow up the the cargo. So it was, again, it was the insurance companies, like a lot of the stuff that was driving all this, these decisions, you can't arm the crew because they're too stupid to take care of themselves. Anyway, I didn't know if that theory would hold water or not. I can tell you, this is something I'm probably one of the proudest things in my whole legal career. To my knowledge, uh, there has not been a single successful pirate attack on an American ship since this case. Why? Because they're all armed now. And what these pirates do is they're not looking to get into a firefight. They're looking for the softest possible mm-hmm. target. So you throw a couple rounds out into the ocean when they're coming after you, they just move on to the next vessel. Yeah. Uh, and, and so this, this case really, really changed the way the industry did business. We talk about lawsuits having a positive effect all the time. Well, th- this one, this one did. It had a real positive impact. Now, and I want to make one real brief distinction before I stop talking about this. When I say the pirates aren't pirates, they're teenagers and fishermen and stuff, it's completely different off the coast of West Africa. These are trained, the Boko Haram. I've had some cases where people were attacked by legitimate mercenaries that were trained by the you know Nigerian military and stuff like that. So and that's also, by the way, where a lot of American oil companies have business. And so it's a different ballgame. It's way more dangerous. They're, the pirate, they, they are true pirates, mercenaries. They are truly, truly dangerous. They're well-armed and they're well-trained. So it, it's kind of a different calculus when you're talking about West Africa. But Yvonne, that's a long way of saying, I didn't know whether these, I didn't know what the cases were. I didn't know whether the theories would hold water or not. I can tell you that as I started getting into this case, it became very clear to me that there were there, there was just screw up after screw up after screw up after screw up. I don't know if you remember from the movie, there's a scene where they're shooting water cannons off the side of the boat. Uh, they didn't have those. Uh, there was a scene where they're shooting noise things to distract. They didn't have right. those. The, 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 the weapon that ATM Reza, who was one of my clients, used uh, was a fork. And I don't know if you know uh, or if you saw that there actually there were four pirates, one of them survived. And when they were perp walking them uh, in federal court, it was a, it was the first piracy prosecution, the criminal prosecution, by the way, in like 100 years in the United States. And they're perp walking and he had an eye patch on like a because he'd been his eye was injured. And that's because ATM Razor stabbed him not only in the hand, but he tried to stab him in the eye. So uh, but they, they, they literally had no protection at all. Like yeah. zero, nothing. I mean, they're fighting people off that have AK-47s using utensils. So, um, but anyway, I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't know what was going to happen. It ended up being, being a fairly substantial legal theory. Uh, and I was able to use it 
uh, represented a former Marine Corps captain who got kidnapped and taken into the jungles of Nigeria for 18 days and tortured by Boko Haram-affiliated mercenaries. And I was able to use a lot of the things that I learned uh, in the Captain Phillips case. In the, that guy's name was Captain Thomas, uh, Ren Thomas, uh, in the Captain in the Captain Thomas case. So, yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, to, you, you know, as you describe it, I mean, the the theory makes uh, makes perfect sense because I was almost thinking of this like you we you know we handle some inadequate security cases we would call them like where you know there's a, a criminal activity at say a hotel or a shopping center where there's been a number of uh, of violent crimes that have happened there and they don't do anything to to cut down on that and then your client ends up getting injured there from what from my understanding there had been multiple uh attacks in this same area uh leading up to this day and in fact i thought i saw somewhere that there was 39 attacks uh like the week before this it was one. I, yeah, that's what i'm saying i mean it was yeah. off the charts and when we when we started plotting on graphs the location and frequency of attacks i mean it's there's more dots in there than there is white space it, it was it was a really 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 bad time uh, to be in that area, and an especially bad time when you were an American merchant ship with, with with no way to defend yourself. The the other thing is, I don't know if they still do this, but a lot of these ships used to carry essentially blackmail cash or payoff cash, and they had I forget the exact number. I want to say it was like thirty thousand bucks in cash in the ship safe, which nobody ever found. By the way, there's some suspicion that the seals maybe know something about that. So it's real kind of oh, weird how that happened. It, but but the point is is uh, the pirates. I mean, they see this ship, and it's like, why wouldn't I attack it? I mean, there's right. going to be tons of untraceable cash, and they have no way to to defend themselves. I mean, that's just like asking. That's just asking to be attacked, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think like if before you know, before I, I really didn't know any of this stuff until I was we were getting ready to talk to you basically and I was reading some of the articles that you had written and and the your you know your videos and because I think you think of something like this you know I, I I'm sure I thought this especially when the actual news story happened as it just being sort of this unforeseeable thing you know this sort of unforeseeable yeah. criminal act yeah. versus <laughs> you know the fact that there was actual guidance about mm -hmm. how far to stay away and how how foreseeable it was was really like i had no idea um that you're contrast. making me smile you're making me smile yvonne because I, I i'll tell you the question that i i used to get a lot was so did you sue the pirates <laughs> <laughs> right right <laughs> well, who'd you sue like who did you sue <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, I sued American Captain Phillips. Why didn't you sue the pirates? Well, first of all, the pirates don't have any fucking money. Sorry for my language. But, no, they, and, and three of them were dead. You know what I mean? And they were yeah. dead. Right. And the, and the other thing, by the way, the, the one that survived is in federal prison still today. And there was a huge question about whether he was even old enough to be tried as an adult because of the records in Somalia are essentially non-existent. So they couldn't prove how old. He was. It couldn't prove whether he was a minor or not. Uh, but but yeah, it, it, the whole thing was was kind of interesting. Because people, did you sue the pirates? No, I sued the shipping company. Why do you sue the shipping company? Well, they were told to stay 200 nautical miles off the coast, and they went twice as close. Ah, 
now yeah. and people yeah. start going like oh and they yeah. didn't have they didn't have, then there were 39 pirate attacks a week before and they had no way to defend themselves what and the british maritime agency told ships they either needed to stay off the coast of Somalia during this time or or to have a way to defend it oh now i'm starting to so that that's Yvonne, that's that was a question i used to get a lot yeah. was whether I whether I sued the pirates. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and that's that's yeah. something a lot of our like listeners can relate to in terms of when we do get these cases that overlapped with, you know, overlap with a, you know, a criminal actor who's going to be has no money and is going to be in jail or is, yeah. you know, it, it, it does bring up a question for me in, under the Jones Act. Would there, if you had tried this case, would there have been an argument by the defense to apportion uh, fault to the pirates? That's that's a. Okay, we're going to go all law nerdy if you want <laughs> right, to. Right, yeah, that, exactly. That's, <laughs> a, that, 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 that's actually one of the reasons why the Jones Act, Steve, is so complex. And right. One of the things that I really focused on, matter of fact, I wrote my law review article on it when I was at UT, is the interaction between federal and state jurisdiction, and in particular, Erie and Reverse Erie, which for people who don't know what that means. In other words, when does federal law trump state law? When does state law trump federal law? The Jones Act is a federal law, and so it's been a quite an interesting thing to watch what happens, like when Texas passed uh, proportionate responsibility, where essentially you can't, you, if somebody, if a plaintiff is more than 51% negligent in Texas, they they don't get anything, right? Yeah. In Virginia, by the way, it's 1%. Right. So yeah. let's, not, let's not complain too much about what, <laughs> what right. we've got. But the Jones Act is pure comparative fault. Pure, pure comparative okay. fault. And so I've argued successfully in every single case that there's that you cannot allow the state proportionate responsibility statute to trump the Jones Act because it speaks directly to the issue. The, the, what, what you're talking about is, at least in Texas, we kind of have this responsible third party, empty chair kind of idea. Uh, and like, for example, they, I don't think they can designate designate them as a responsible third party because the basic question in that analysis, again, not to get super legal nerdy on you, is is, is the law substantive or procedural? And right. my, my reading of the law, and I think the proper framework is if it has to do with substantive rights, for example, how, how many, how much damages you can collect, what your statute of limitation is. What claims you can bring, those are those are substantive, and so those are going to trump every single state law. So we we never got to the point. They, Steve, they never designated the pirates uh, as responsible third parties. They would have argued at trial. They would have tried to empty chair him and said, "Well, why is he suing us? It was these it was these pirates that got killed by the seals that did everything." And I think they would have tried to make that argument. Of course, I would have told the judge ahead of time that that argument was improper because they shouldn't be on the charge because the uh, Jones Act doesn't contemplate that kind of thing. So that would have been an argument that would have been quite a good argument. I'm not sure how it would have come out because we never got to that stage. But that that's a, yeah. that's a really, really good question, actually. Some of these articles that you had written, Brian, seem like in in you clarify if I'm wrong with this timeline, but it seemed like some of the articles you had written are sort of these statements that you had made about what had really happened in the case versus how it was depicted or going to be depicted in the movie. Um, you know, 
uh, reading those, I thought, okay, timeline wise, it was, I, it was after the movie was out, but before you were able to try your case and yeah. uh, which obviously you, you ultimately did not do. Um, but, you know, at that point, are you, were you thinking about, you know, trying to get the word out to even, you know, potential jurors? Or are you thinking, I would just want the truth out because I want it, the truth out for my clients? Um, because it was, it was really informative and, 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 and luckily, you know, people can still watch some of those videos and read those articles. Um, but I'm just wondering time-wise for you, how that, how that fit into when everything happened. Yeah. I, I love, I love that question because I think as trial lawyers, we have a responsibility if our clients cases are being affected by media to fight back. And the problem that I was facing, and, and this is, again, this is why I asked the judge, I literally asked the judge to move the trial date up so this wouldn't be an issue. And the defense didn't want to do it. And the judge didn't want to do it. Okay, well, fine. Now I got to fight this. I mean, they're coming out and Hollywood is spending millions and millions and millions of dollars to make Captain Phillips look like a hero. It's, it's, it's Tom Hanks. I feel like Part of my job as a trial lawyer is to fight back and make sure that the real real story gets told. And frankly, that's what my clients wanted me to do to begin with. Like they, right. they, they, they literally instructed me to do exactly that. And I'll tell you one thing. So I have a my undergraduate degree is in computer science. I've been super interested in technology since the early 90s. And I I was really, really proud of how we were able to t me and my partner, basically, you know, just this little boutique law firm in Houston, we took on Hollywood and we beat them like the narrative out there. At least when I was when I was on this case, every single time you saw an article about this case, there was always something there that said, but there is currently a lawsuit that questions whether a lot of the stuff in the movie is true. So our and, you know, pirate infested waters that. Mm -hmm phrase uh, was bouncing around everywhere. And that was because of what we were doing to try to counter this big uh, publicity push. But but the point is, is I, I feel like, and, and not only that, guys, but I feel like uh, not only do we have an obligation to our specific clients, if the publicity, and, and I actually think most states' ethical rules say that you have a right, if there is bad publicity, to comment in, in a way favorable to your clients. I think that's actually written, it's either written into the rules or it's, there's case law that says that. So, which makes total sense, but I think it's bigger than that. Like, I think the obligation is bigger than that. I think we have an obligation to, to educate the public about what's really going on. And what's really going on most of the time, as you guys know, is it's some insurance company with a bunch of pencil neck bean counters that are trying to nickel and dime people to death and they make all the decisions and people are like, oh, somebody just got hit with 40, some poor grandma got hit for $40 million. And I'm like, that grandma didn't get hit for anything. It was some insurance company right. in the background making decisions. We're not allowed to talk about that in court. Why? Because the insurance companies know if we do, the jurors are going to look at the case differently, right? Yeah. And so, so I feel a, a real obligation to educate the public as well. So Yvonne, the internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic, and it's getting harder and harder to get noticed 
online and you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like digital law marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website, and you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. I don't know if you guys have kept up with the Astroworld case in Houston where a bunch of kids got killed at a Travis Scott concert. Right. Yeah. And hundreds of people got hurt. I've been heavily involved in that case since the very beginning. Travis Scott and Drake, these two pieces of you-know-what, after these 10 kids are killed, are partying at the club that night at a strip club. And they've got, obviously, a tremendous reach in, in their publicity. And so I was shooting YouTube videos that were getting 30,000, 40,000 hits, uh, uh, you know, views or whatever you want to call it until the judge put on a gag order on everybody. But the reason, one of the reasons I was doing that was Travis Scott and Drake and all these nitwits are up there. You know, Drake, the tough gangster who used to be a Disney Mouseketeer. But anyway, literally, yeah. Kanye is a gangster. Both his parents are college professors. But anyway, (laughs) anyway, the, the point is I learned a lot in the Captain Phillips case about how to, make sure the narrative, the narrative in the stratosphere, whatever you want to call it, is uh, not negative for my clients. And so I've used the, I've used what I've learned in that case a bunch since then. You know, it's a really good point. And I, uh, I I agree with you, but I think it's something that uh, a lot of lawyers, a lot of, you know, practicing lawyers struggle with is, you know, when there's been, a you know you know a case that that ends up being high profile and and like you were uh, up against probably the biggest media machine out there and you know sort of uh you know pumping you know how great this movie was going to be and how great Captain Phillips was and what a hero he was uh you know to so to take on that and and to try and keep the narrative at least fair uh is just a a a huge undertaking and um and And steve 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 keep in mind too i should have mentioned this earlier keep in mind that i was fighting with one hand tied behind my back the hollywood people could literally say whatever they wanted to 
I was under a confidentiality order. There was a, there's still a bunch of stuff I can't talk about uh, with as far as the details of what went on in the case because the confidentiality is, is, still lives. Uh, I took Captain Phillips' deposition up in the Northeast for two days. I'm not allowed to talk about it at all. As a matter of fact, somebody gave during the case, somebody gave Captain Phillips' deposition transcript to a CNN reporter. Marist then blamed it on me and tried to say that I was, gen and I, I did not do that. And I, if there's a confidentiality order, I'm, I'm a rule follower when it comes oh, yeah. to that sort of thing. Like I follow the rules and I expect my opponents to follow the rules too. And if you don't follow the rules, I'm going to call your ass on it. Uh, but you can't be calling people and breaking the rules if you don't follow yourself. So uh, the point was, is Hollywood was saying all this stuff and I'm literally trying to punch back, but there's, there was things that I, I mean, I, there's things I still can't say that if I could <laughs> would, right. would be, would, would be rather dramatic. I'll, 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 I'll kind of get around around the edges on, of it a little bit here. Every single vessel has to have a VSOP, VSOP, when they're in international waters. It's a vessel security plan, VSP. I, I um, saw some reference to that in one of the one of the uh, opinions on it, I think. So yeah, yeah and no, no, when you those are that's like the recipe for Coke, essentially. Like <laughs> and it makes sense. Like you do not want people knowing what your security plan is. And I was like, when they said, let's do confidentiality on that, I'm like, absolutely. I don't want to put any more sailors at risk. You guys put more of them at risk already. Right. Like, I don't yeah. want to make it worse for them. So, but, but the point is that the publicity thing was like, I felt like I was, I was pretty severely handicapped in terms of what I could say, but um, but again, I, I feel like most people that are familiar with this movie are also familiar with the fact that it's kind of not, it's kind of made up in many respects. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and I think that that's, I'm just, I'm glad you bring that up because I think it, to your point, we have all these obligations as lawyers and all these rules that we have to follow that your average person doesn't. And I think you can fall into this sort of default, I know I have, you know, with clients, especially when a case is early or ongoing and, and you haven't deposed anybody yet and things like that, but, you know, clients who are upset and who want to get the word out, they, you know, sort of navigating that line of, of you know, wanting them to be heard or feel heard or wanting to get a safety message out, but also being worried I don't want this. I don't want anything that they that they say or I say to be used to to hurt them or against them later. I, I always feel like that there's that. I'm always trying to <laughs> those wheels are always churning in my brain when I think about saying yeah. anything to the press or anything public. hundred percent. Couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, it's just tough. But but I like the way you phrase it in terms of, well, we have an obligation to do that if if it's something that's potentially going to be used to hurt our client or skew our client's story. Well, 100 percent. And so and think about this, like think about the term ambulance chaser. OK, that, that that term was made up by some insurance dork sitting in a conference room trying to make us look bad. And what, what that what what that means is, generally speaking, is somebody that somebody gets hurt. And they run out to the scene and they chase down the ambulance to try to sign them up. OK, uh, no lawyers really do that anymore. And if they do, they can get thrown in jail. OK, right. you know who does that? Insurance adjusters. The second some catastrophe hits, 
they are at the scene trying to get people when the Deepwater Horizon blew up, trying to get mm-hmm. people to sign papers. They are the real ambulance. I mean, that that is legitimately ambulance chasing. And d- due to the nature of the cases that I handle, I handle some fairly substantial cases. And <clears throat> so so there are substantial events. I mean, there are 50 insurance adjusters swarming all, all over every explosion scene that I'm at. We have a joke down here in Houston in the plaintiff's bar. You know, these oil companies are constantly blowing up plants. And there's never been anybody ever hurt, according to the oil companies in those explosions, right. because literally the first thing they say is there are no injuries. Right. And then you find out that 25 people are, you know, burned all over their bodies or something like that. So but the point is, is the we I think we lose sight as travelers of the fact that the, it really is skewed against individual human beings. And those are the people that we represent. And so we have. We have a lot, a lot of things we have to do to level the playing field, and showing up in court and trying the case is just part of it. That, that's not all of it. Yeah, yeah. I, I did want to ask you, um, Brian, if if this case had gone to trial, uh, you know, other than what we've already uh, already talked about, what what did you anticipate their defense was going to be, uh, other than blaming the pirates? <laughs> It, that was going to be the primary defense. I think the secondary defense would have been, you know, the classic. And I started, I was a, a firm that doesn't, it's not named this anymore, called Fulbright and Jaworski in Houston. Mm-hmm. So I was a yeah. defense lawyer for a few years. I was around some very, very good defense lawyers. And there was one one guy named Otway Denny. He's a good friend of mine still today. And he had the, he, he as the older he got, the worse his cases got. I mean, he'd have the case where, you know, busload of nuns get hit by a, UPS driver on meth and he's got to go down there and figure out how the hell am I going to defend this and he had the he has the classic uh defense which would be look this was horrible uh we we were definitely at fault uh we need to pay but th- th- these people are insane how much money they want and so Awe was very, very good at like not pissing people off. That would be one of the in the in the indefensible cases. That would basically be his strategy. I mean, I remember there was there was a defense one time, some sort of oil case, and Awe was like, you know, uh, Mr. Plaintiff's lawyer, this well wasn't successful, so he wants he wants to dig a well right here in the courtroom, and you jurors to <laughs> to so so that that was kind of so I think they would have. They would have poo-pooed the damages a little bit. The damages right. were actually, uh, they were a little troublesome because, and, and I'll tell you this too, I used to think PTSD was made up nonsense, like a lot of us. I've had enough people with PTSD to know that I would rather have a back injury than have PTSD. Like mm-hmm. if you have true PTSD, it is absolutely debilitating. It's the only thing you can think about morning, noon, and night. Mm. And what what they did to my clients was... They stuffed them into a closed room that was like 125 degrees for 14 hours, and they had no food, no water. Many of them uh, had heart problems afterwards that continued after the fact. Obviously, they were all all thought they were they literally thought they were going to die of uh, dehydration, and uh, ultimately the seals were able to release them. But 14 hours in a 10 by 10 room that's 120 degrees with no food and water. Uh, why your captain's out there and they're doing God knows what to him 
is, uh, I mean, these guys suffered pretty, and these are tough guys too, by the way, people that work on these ships are not wimps. And so, you know, it takes quite a bit for them to even talk about PTSD. I I think, thankfully, I I hope you guys have seen this too. You know, thankfully, I think the, the, uh, kind of negative connotations for people with mental illnesses are kind of going away. Uh, you know, I had a problem uh, with panic attacks about 10 years ago. So I've kind of had a personal experience with this. And like I said, man, I'd rather have a broken arm or a back injury mm-hmm. than have, you know, PTSD or some sort of a mental issue. So, but that, that's where they would have, uh, you know, maybe yeah. 10, 12 years ago, people would have been a less, a little less uh, understanding about, how these kind of incidents leave scars in your brain not, and not just your body. Yeah. It, well, and and the, the tough thing about those cases is that, you know, to look at the person, to talk to them, they, they seem relatively normal and, um, yeah, you know, to absolutely. really express what they're going through. And, and, you know, and think about these guys is, you know, this is what they do for a living. This is, you know, uh, how they're supporting their families. And so, you know, they're going to be asked if they want to keep their job to go back out on the water again and, and I'm, that's got to be in their mind that this could happen For again, sure. you know, and how you do, how are you going to do your job? Yeah. The, the, I mean, the, I, the, the, the boat captain, that, uh, Captain Thomas, who I still keep up with, uh, he had PTSD so bad that a, there was a, there's a company in California, a guy that raises PTSD dogs for military veterans. They're like $30,000 per dog. And he just, my guy was an ex-Marine. He had seen something about uh, his story on the news and he called him up, said, come out to California. I want to give you one of these dogs. And so, so this was a, it was truly a PTSD dog, a big, big dog too, like a Rottweiler looking thing. And Mm -hmm. Captain Tom, his name was Bo. Captain Thomas got Bo. When, when, when Captain Thomas gave his deposition, Bo was sitting there right next to him. When he would come to my office, Bo would be sitting there right next to him. When I see him on Facebook, Bo's getting really old now, and I'm a little worried about what Captain Thomas is going to do once once Bo goes to doggy heaven. But yeah, uh, like I, I, I saw with my own two eyes, first of all, I saw with my own two eyes what this experience had done to Captain Thomas, and I saw with my own two eyes once he got a PTSD dog what a difference it made. And so anyway, that's a very long way of saying that's they probably would attack would have attacked the PTSD damage. The other thing from a legal perspective is there's this idea you can't under the Jones Act recover for purely psychological loss. So there had to be some sort of physical something. And so the 125 degree uh, heat with no water was the physical act that led to the PTSD. But th- that's frankly a stupid rule in 2023. Yeah, like yeah. you should be able to recover <clears throat> for purely, for purely mental injuries because they exist and they're real. And in many respects, they're worse than physical injuries. Yeah. So. Uh, and, and they, they yeah. really are physical, right. You know, especially yeah. something like PTSD, they really do you know, I don't even I don't even really think that distinction makes sense anymore. Yeah, that that's and I'm so glad you said that, Yvonne, because I'm going to start saying the same thing. You're 100 percent right. There is a physical piece to it. And the more we understand about the brain and the hormonal system and all that. Exactly. The more we'll be, yeah. The more the more we'll be able to figure out what physically is going wrong. That that was that's one of the best comments I've heard in a long time. I must yes. I must start. Nice. Using, I'm, seriously, <laughs> I, I'm a, next time next time some defense lawyer gets up there and says, 
Mr. Beckham cannot recover for only physical injuries. I'm going to have a doctor say, actually, his cortisol levels and this are off because of hormones. This is a physical injury. That is a beautiful argument, and I'm stealing it. And I will give you credit for it. <laughs> I, I swear, I, I swear I, I've never, I've never heard that before. That's a, that, 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 seriously, that's a game changing argument. So yeah, thank yeah. you for thank you for giving me that. Well, yeah. And I, I just have to know. I mean, you hear, heard it here first. The great trials. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> No, but Uh-oh. I mean, it's true. And, and I do think just to your point before we move on, because I, I do think it's really important is that I, I have seen an improvement, I feel like, in people understanding those kinds of conditions and how those uh, e- even with addiction, how things like that can be can be more physical and more of a disease and something that has actual observable markers. And I think the more people talk about it and the more we talk about that for our clients, the more other people are then willing to talk about it and realize that everybody has somebody in their family, if it's not themselves, who who has one or more of these these issues. And so I, I am happy to see that improvement. I think I think less and less of that has to be explained to people as as more folks are willing to talk about it in general. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, I, it is changing, but I still think we have a long ways to go. And, and and I even see it, you know, sometimes when, you know, lawyers have a hard time expressing it, expressing it for their clients mm-hmm. and, and to really explain, what, you know, and show what the clients are going through. So it's I agree that we are making progress, but I, I think we got we got a long ways to go to talk about um, uh, mental sure. health issues. Yeah, yeah, so. for sure. Well, uh, well, Brian. I mean, we, we, this has been just a great, uh, a, a great show and, and really fascinating uh, topic. I, w- I want to remind everybody we've been talking about the attack that happened in April of two thousand nine on the Marisk, Alabama, off the coast of Somalia, uh, and and the case that Brian Beckham and his uh, his partners uh, handled in in getting justice from Marisk Line uh, Limited. And and Brian, I just want to ask you: Is there anything um, that we haven't talked about? Actually, uh, there is something that just popped into my head. Uh, are you able? To, you you mentioned uh, as sort of a teaser right at the beginning about something that happened during the Navy SEALs rescue. Uh, if, yeah. if there's something you can share, I'd love to hear it. So I'll 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 talk about it as much as I can. So, like I said, every one of these ships, I'm sure with some exceptions, but generally speaking, they would have some sort of cash on hand for the specific purpose of paying bribes and kidnapping ransom money. And most ships had that. The You said something when you were describing the case that was a little bit inaccurate. The way the movie depicted the SEALs taking out these pirates wasn't exactly the way it happened. It was pictured as a real precision operation. Right. There were actually, I think, 100-plus rounds fired in this little small vessel. I mean, they 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 laid into this thing and they think that the cash somehow went from this from the from the Marisk Alabama to this rescue capsule and then it disappeared nobody has ever found it nobody knows what happened to it there was some talk about did the steels take this Frankly, I, I come from a military background. I'm kind of thinking if these guys took a little bit of this, I don't really care that much. Right, you know? right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. But 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 everybody everybody was everybody wanted to know like what happened to the to the thirty grand? Like right. did Captain did Captain Phillips shove it in his pants on the way? You know, <laughs> right. it's, it, it's still the point is it's still never been accounted for, and no, nobody knows why. Um, but but yeah, super 
super interesting. And I think I told the part about the fact that there's uh, potentially a former child who got convicted of piracy that's sitting in federal prison right now and, yeah. and will be for, I think, the remainder of his life, if I remember. So uh, that that was kind of neat. But, yeah, you, you know, know, the bottom, the, yeah. So I was just going to say uh, th that is one other thing that we didn't really talk about is like how this this pirating came to be in Somalia that you write about on your website um, that, you know, basically that that their fishing waters had been destroyed by toxic dumping. And yeah. so you have all these these guys who made their living off of fishing and then couldn't do that. And so it's slowly over time or maybe quickly over time uh, became uh, piracy. I often ask myself, uh, I hear people complaining about countries like Mexico or Somalia or other countries. And I, and I often ask myself this question. Let's take Mexico, for example. Uh, I think the problems in Mexico are 100% the fault of the United States drug policy. And I, there were no cartels uh, in Mexico until the, the dumbest public policy decision in history, the stupid drug war, which is which has never succeeded, will never succeed has resulted in trillions of dollars of wasted money, people in prison, families, and it hasn't had any effect on the drug war at all. And it's created that you want to stop the immigration problem, stop the drug war. You stop that immediately. You want to stop the violence in minority communities in Chicago, stop the drug war. So the point is, Somalia was a failed country. Uh, in addition to the, the, the fishing areas being polluted. And I, and I often wonder because uh, maybe it's just my personality. I, I often wonder, do we have something to do with that? Like, mm -hmm. are the policies that we push often have uh, unintended consequences? Like, in other words, it, the drug war was originally uh, motivated by pure racism. I mean, that's on that's on the record. Like, it, it's literally Richard Nixon talking to H.R. Haldeman on tape, talking about how hippies and minorities are the ones that do drugs and they vote Democrats, so let's crack down on them. So, but some of these policies, I think, were were well intended. Uh, some of the geopolitical policies, but they end up having consequences that that none of us want. And and Somalia, you guys remember Black Hawk Down? I don't mm -hmm. know if that reference is yeah. too old, but you know we're, we we've been in Somalia for quite some time, and as far as I can tell, it hasn't gotten much better. So are you, at some point, you guys start asking yourself. You know, I think Einstein said, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing again and again and expecting a different result. Uh, I, I think we should ask ourselves tough questions about, in other words, I don't think it's, I think the easy thing and the immature thing to do is say, it's all Mexico's fault. It's all Somalia's fault. It's all this country's fault. It's all Iran's fault. What, you know, the Iran, Iran's a great example. The Iranian people, by and large, are super pro-Western. They love America. It's a small subsection of their leaders. The problem is our policy hurts everybody. And so we're turning people against us maybe when we don't need to. So that that's just my way of saying like yeah. the Somali, the Somali issue was uh I think we need to look in the mirror sometimes about some of this stuff and say, are, are some of our policies causing some of these problems? Because if I was a fisherman in Somalia. And the decision was for my family to starve or get on a boat and go try to get some money from some undefended ships. I, I know what decision I would make. If I was in Mexico and having to deal with these cartels, I would do whatever I could to get away from them. And yeah. I think most of us would. So <clears throat> I don't I don't blame some the Somalians, Somalis as a country or anything like that. They, they just had some very, very, very difficult circumstances and still do.
Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it, and, you know, at least from their eyes, you know, if they go out to get, uh, you know, get some money from these ships, they probably view those ships as the ones that were destroying their waters in the first place. So absolutely. Uh, so, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. That's right. Yeah. Well, uh, now that we've stirred the political pot uh, a little bit, no, um, I, uh, <laughs> I just want to say. I actually did while we while we were talking about ahead, that, Devon. I did I did come up with my. Th this is really going to be my best idea from the podcast. <laughs> all right, all right. You you remake Captain Phillips. You do exactly the same, like super skewed that he's like a good guy, but then at the end you show that he has the $30,000 right. and it would be like yeah, the right. next usual suspects. You know what I mean? And, like, yeah. And he could be like walking away, like <laughs> yeah, looking back right. at the camera. And, yeah. yeah. That, that, and then be like, have $30,000 in the <laughs> what I thought right. you were going to say is, what I thought you were going to say is I would have chat GPT write <laughs> uh, the script about the real way everything right, right. went down and have the yeah. real thing told for the, <laughs> for the <laughs> we could do, we could do that too. I love the usual suspects spin though. That's yeah, exactly. Great. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Kaiser well, uh, Sosa. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. exactly. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> well, listen, Brian, this has been just a great, uh, a, a great time talking about this case. I want to remind everybody we've been talking to Brian Beckham, uh, a partner at VB Attorneys in Houston, Texas. You can look him up at VBAttorneys.com. That's VBAttorneys.com. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for your time. This has been just great. Awesome. Thank, thank you both. Uh, it, it's been a real pleasure. I, like I said, I know it's we've been trying to do this for quite some time, and I'm I'm really, really glad we finally got together. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thanks, everyone, for listening. It really means a lot to me, Steve, and the Great Trials podcast team. And we have a few people we want to thank, right, Steve? That's right. Definitely thank our sponsors. Uh, digital Law Marketing, and you can go to digitallawmarketing.com. Who's next, Devon? And then we've got Legal Technology Services, or LTS, and you can look them up at legaltechservice.com. And then, of course, we don't want to forget Raz and podonthego.com. Yes, and uh, tell, tell Raz we sent you, but um, he is our trusty producer and does great work. So uh, feel free to reach out to him if you need help with your podcast. Hey, we should also thank our law partners because uh, we're uh, our firm has been very supportive uh, and that's Harris Lowry Mann. And if you want to look us up, it's at hlmlawfirm.com. And then of course, we always want you to rate and review us and give a great review if you feel that that's, uh, if that's how you feel. Um, and you can go on and do that at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podbean Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening, guys.